This archival program of Design Matters with Debbie Millman was produced for Voice America Internet Radio. New programs with better audio quality are now being produced for Design Observer. You can subscribe in the iTunes Store or at the Observer Media Channel on Design Observer. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the show that takes you inside the provocative and stimulating world of design and branding as it intersects with contemporary culture. Here's your host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. At the end of last year, Steve Jones, head of the Department of Genetics and Evolution at London's University College, announced that the forces driving evolution, including natural selection and genetic mutation, no longer play an important role in our lives. He further stated that should man survive a million years from now, they would resemble us, modern-day humans. We now know so much about the process of evolution that we could make some predictions about what might happen in the future, Jones said in his lecture, and explained how evolution is driven by natural selection and mutation. Genetic mutations create traits which if helpful, give individuals a competitive edge over rivals. Jones continued that in our modern world of central heating and plenty of food, mutations are far less likely to give children any advantage. A baby born today can expect to live a long and healthy life, which in turn works against the evolutionary tool of natural selection. Mutations occur, occur when cells divide. But every time a cell divides, there is actually a chance of an error, a mutation. Ironically, it is those errors or mutation mistakes that are the foundation of all of evolution. Mutations appear to be spontaneous in most instances. Sometimes they're beneficial, like inheriting an ability to run or fly faster. And many times they are harmful, like the predisposition for hemophilia or some types of cancer. But everything around us is impacted by this strange and persistent transformative power, including behavior. There are two popular theories about the evolution of behavior. One is rather logical and is favored by continuity theorists. The theory suggests that the behavior of modern man is simply the result of the aggregation of knowledge, of skills, and of culture over hundreds of thousands of years of human evolution. The other, far more mysterious theory contends that the seeds of our modern behavior occurred as a single, sudden event some 50,000 years ago and came about as a result of a major genetic mutation or as the result of a biological reorganization of the brain. Some scientists refer to this phenomenon as the big brain bang, but the more politically correct term is also far more magical. It is considered the great leap forward. This great leap forward is responsible for most of our modern abilities, language, art, music, cooking, self-decoration, and even telling jokes. This error also ushered in religious practices, honoring and burying the dead, and playing games. They are fundamentally considered cultural universals. Given the state of our society today, I find it unthinkable to conceive of mankind permanently stuck in this groove of ghastly behavior filled with violence and cruelty, torture and evil, Whenever I have fantasized about the faraway future, I always assumed that we would become a smarter species, less petty and narrow-minded. We would attain greater spiritual awareness and a much higher consciousness. So I'm hopeful that the third ingredient, important evolution, will intervene. This third factor is randomness. Chance, in the form of mutations, provides for genetic variation. So there is always the chance that despite central heating and plenty of food, a random variation will ensure that one million years from now, we are, if nothing more, a kinder and more considerate species. 
When thinking about evolution and behavioral modernity and all of their inherent implications, I can't help but wonder how these scientific theories relate to art and design. Sure, it is easy to view both as narratives of random possibilities, with each new innovation a search for new standards. But how do advances in art and design occur? Is each error in art and design or music and literature built on top of one another? Is it a matter of linear influence? I can logically see the links from Impressionism to Expressionism and Fauvism to Cubism and Dadaism to Pop. But is it necessary to be aware of these styles in order to discover another? Malcolm Gladwell, in his provocative new book, Outliers, suggests that the innovation uncovered by artists like the Beatles or innovators like Bill Gates also came about through hours and hours of practice and often 10 years of hard work. But luck, or being at the right place at the right time, were factors as well. But if natural selection and progress are based on random mutations, then wouldn't it be possible that massive breakthroughs in the way we think and perceive and create could also be accidental? Are they merely evidence of another great leap forward? Whether great art of any kind is built on the shoulders of those who came before by influence or evolution is unclear to me. Somehow it feels more sacred, more magical. And yet, when in the presence of greatness, there almost seems to be an inevitability or a sense of destiny about it. I recently heard overheard a discussion with two friends talking about a mutual acquaintance who became particularly successful. And they realized as they were talking about that person that they'd always expected that level of success from that old friend, that somehow that person always seemed destined for greatness. Where does great innovation come from? Could the answer be as simple as a random act of intellectual mutation? Is it from a deep knowledge of what has come before with the acumen to see exactly what should come next? Or is it something innate that is destined to happen? Maybe it is a combination of all three. In some ways, I hope so. I have found that my destiny is usually found on the road that I take to avoid it. Perhaps next time I travel there, I will be lucky enough to stumble upon something I have never seen before. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. I'm your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is Neville Brody. Before we get started with our interview, please let me tell you a little bit more about him. British designer and art director Neville Brody has been at the forefront of graphic design for over two decades. Initially working in record cover design, Brody first made his name through his revolutionary work as art director for The Face magazine. Other international magazine directions have included City Limits and Arena, together with the London's The Observer newspaper and magazine. Neville has consistently pushed the boundaries of visual communication in all media through his experimental and challenging work, and continues to create the visual languages we use through his exploratory creative expression. In 1988, Brody published the first of his two monographs, which have since become the world's best-selling graphic design books. An accompanying ex exhibition of his work at the Victoria and Albert Museum attracted over 40,000 visitors before touring Europe and Japan. Since 1994, Neville has been at the helm of research studios in London. Clients range across all media, from web to print, and from environmental and retail design to moving graphics and film titles. A sister company, Research Publishing, produces and publishes experimental multimedia work by young artists. The primary focus is on FUSE, the renowned conference, and quarterly forum for experimental typography and communications. I am so honored to welcome you, Neville, to the show. Thank you so much for being on Design Matters. My pleasure, Debbie. Well, on your website, you have a picture of you as a little boy. You look no more than about three, standing on a little chair, focusing on a camera, focusing a camera on a tripod. Do you remember that moment? Actually, I do. Um, my father was, I mean, he still does. He repairs cameras. Um, he's, run, he's now 82, and he's been running a camera repair business um, pretty much all his life. And uh, in those days, he was a very proud amateur photographer. And that picture actually appeared on the, the cover of Amateur Photographer magazine. Oh, wow. How did that happen? 
Um, I, I was three. I mean, <laughs> so you don't know exactly. I didn't quite understand what was going on. What were you taking a picture of? Um, I, hopefully my future. Um, oh, wonderful. No, I, I, to be honest, um, I had a, a natural kind of attraction to technology and objects, and I was drawing long before I was walking. Really? Yeah, I mean, some people like to become like train drivers or fantasize about being doctors or firemen, but I was always going to be an artist. I never had that luxury of, well, you know, maybe I'll do something different. And so, so now so looking... All, all my life, this is kind of where I was always heading. So, so you never had a, a desire to do anything but art and design? I've always had that desire. So... Um, you know, in, in, one, in one of our previous interviews, you said that you consider yourself a fine artist. I am, absolutely. I think that, I mean, your talk at the beginning, actually, while I was listening, I, I, I thought I was on the wrong show for a minute. Um, oh, well, I try to link science and no, art no, no, and design I, I thought as that was very cool. I thought that was very cool. And actually, a lot of the points you were raising... Um, I think tie in very, very, very directly with what drives me in my work and what inspires me in the kind of places I'm, I'm seeking to uncover or, or discover. Well, tell me more about that. How, how so? Well, coming back to your point about being a fine artist, um, my approach has always been quite painterly. Yes. And painterly necessarily means there's an area of or a notion of exploration um, of the unknown. Um, and then the other role I, I think painting has is to reveal the underbelly of society. It, it's a kind of a mirror, if you want. It's a way of revealing what's going on in the subconsciousness of society and giving it space to breathe and, and, and expression. How do, you um, think it, how do you think it does that? How do you think that painting is, the, is that underbelly? How does it... How, how would you, um, can you give me an example of what you mean by that? Well, you see, I think painting in its purest and most natural form um, is an intuitive expression of what is going on. It's kind of the, the inner workings given a conduit to the outside world. Um, so, for instance, you might find a particular era obsessed with um, perfection, mm. and that would very, very much reveal a society that was um, afraid of imperfection. Um, or you might find a society that's that has its art, which is rooted in abstract expressionism, formless, um, non-contextual, non-textual expression, which reveals a society that is so maybe uptight and in a place of fear that it needs to move beyond objects. Um, the place is in such a place of control. You, you need this kind of outlet. So art is historically a way of revealing um, the inner workings of a society that you don't get on the surface. Do you feel that the work that you're doing now is reflecting the inner workings of society? Um, I think not consciously in the sense of the intuitive marks I make, but consciously in the sense that I think design has that role to play in modern society. I think a lot of art and painting has become so much a tool of uh, the commercial art market yes. that, in fact, it's, it's moved beyond um, a service, if you want, into um, commodity. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's, it's, it's high practitioners in another era probably would have been creative directors or ad agencies. That um, are now painters that are... That are now there. painters. Um, and that means what they do is they work with the sensation that they wish to create. They work the with the sensation that they wish to create. What do you mean by that? Um, you might want to create shock. Okay. Um, or you might want to create... Um, uh, discomfort um, within your social point of view. So you might say, okay, I want to shock, I want to take a, um, I'm going to take domestic objects 
and then use them in a shocking way um, in order to create some sort of sensation. Of course, the sensation is short-lived. So you might find, I mean, uh, someone like Damien Hurst, who I think is more of a, a graphic designer and art director than, a, than an artist. Um, How do you, what, what would you consider to be the distinction between a graphic designer um, and an artist? When I was at Foundation course, um, I don't know if you have Foundation in the U.S., um, but it's, it's the one year you do prior to your specialization, in which you do everything from painting to photography to, to, to pottery to sculpture to design. Yeah, I and mean, I know that a lot of uh, universities and colleges have um, prerequisites that you need in order to graduate, mandatory things that you need to take, but... There isn't anything quite like that here. No, it's, it's wonderful. It's an absolute, it, it's, it's a gift. Um, and it's a fantastic thing to go through. Um, and often it allows you to develop skills in areas that you hadn't suspected existed in yourself. So it's a, it's a, a fantastic opportunity. And the, the college I went to was, London, um, sorry, Hornsey College of Art, which was in 1968 um, the route of, the kind of student uprising in, in London. Mm -hmm. um, politically, Margaret Thatcher closed it down um, within 15 or so years of that date. Um, but what happened was I went in pretty much with an open mind and I was going to head into painting. And then two things changed that. One, I, I suspected that painting was, in fact, um, a fake. Um, in the sense that it was being, I suppose, un untrue about its real imperative, which, which was commercial. Um, masquerading as being there for the benefit of mankind, when in fact it was for the benefit of, of uh, people's uh, bank accounts. And, and I, th I went into graphic design because I felt that advertising and graphics were so manipulative of the way we think. Um, but I wanted to discover what was going on in order to reveal what was going on. Um, but at the time, one of my tutors said to me, he said, the difference between fine art and graphic design is people who are going to design are artists that need to be briefed. <laughs> so, who need the idea? Well, yeah, or exactly, need exactly. the subject matter, really. Yeah. It's the subject matter, not the idea. Yes, they, they need accurate commissions. Um, artists are people that can commission themselves, basically. Mm -hmm. um, whereas designers need to be commissioned. So if you consider yourself to be a fine artist, would you then say that you really can commission yourself? Um, I, uh, when people ask me what I do, I tend to, to say that I'm a, I'm a visual communicator more than anything. Mm -hmm. um, which yeah, means that you know, a lot of the work I do is quite abstract. Um, and a lot of the work I do is very precise and, and very defined. Um, so I think um, Ian Wright, the illustrator who's now in New York, based in New York, I mean, his, his business card says painter and decorator, which I think is a, is a lot more accurate. I mean, I, I don't know if you have that job description in the U.S., but painter and decorator is someone that comes around and, and paints your house. Mm -hmm. So um, more of an interior decorator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's it's a very fundamental. It's like plumber mm -hmm. or or, clean, or painter now. decorator. Mm -hmm. um, so and he's a fine artist, but refers to himself as a painter and a decorator. He's an illustrator, and he refers okay. to himself in a very kind of humble way. And I think that I think humility is 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 kind of lacking these days in graphic design. I think we're we're so fallen foul of of uh, celebrity culture. Um, oh, well, well, do you think that, that um, you can take a, a line and draw that back to your emergence on the scene? I mean, there's certainly, there's certainly very few designers that have, have reached the level of success and fame that you have. In fact, I would consider you to be sort of the, um, the original bad boy of, of graphic design in many <laughs> ways. Thank you, Debbie. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I don't think that... I was the first kind of graphic design beetle, but um, well, certainly I'm, among them. No, but you see, the problem is people mis people mistook 
my celebrity for my intention. And celebrity was never what What I'd intended. I'd intended to put ideas out in society and in the design industry that would be provocative and set people thinking and maybe get people to look at visual communication in a different way. And I realized very early on that you can't sit on the fringe of industry and society and do that. So you have to use the tools that exist in society in order to to gain a larger audience. Well, I know that you've said that you used your celebrity status as a communication tool, and I know that um, certainly in the last couple of years you've been very, very vocal about being determined to keep a low profile and that your work is is very much now about nurturing and supporting a young team. You know you're still doing... Uh, very high-profile projects, and I want to talk about that in a little bit, but do you think that the, the Neville Brody of the 80s and 90s was a, was an invention, or do you think that um, it was as part of, as much a part of your um, style as the output itself? Um, I mean, the Neville Brody of the 80s and 90s wasn't an invention, um, meaning me as a person sitting in my basement um, working 24-7, turning out as much work as I could and experimenting as much as I could. That wasn't the invention. The invention was what society applied to that. Mm. Um, the public version of Neville Brody is something I don't own. Um, it's a public domain identity that has very, very little to do with me as a person. In, in our last interview, you mentioned to me that you thought that there were two Neville Brodies, that there was the Neville Brody that dealt with the plumber and took out the garbage, and then the Neville Brody that somehow was what many other people see from the outside. And yes. Do you still feel that way? Do you feel oh, yes, that absolutely. Are... The other day I was doing my shopping and was at the checkout counter, and the checkout guy said, um, you look very familiar. And I said, well, I shop here all the time. He said, no. Um, are you Neville Brody? I said, yes. Said, well, I said, wow, that, that's pretty that amazing. <laughs> I'd like to bring my portfolio around next week. So, you know, this it, it kind of, unfortunately, crosses over in some spaces. And does that bother you? Do you feel that that's somehow um, a violation it's, of It surprises or? me. It Pardon? always surprises me. Um, because, you know, I still sit up sit at my computer and sit at my desk and struggle with what I'm doing um, and turn out rubbish as well as, as stuff that I'm more proud of. And it's just a human struggle, as all of us um, do with our work. Um, and I just find it very surreal, I think, to walk down the street sometimes and have someone ask for my autograph, which happens sometimes. It's just a, a very weird situation. Um, well, but you, I'm sorry? So I was going to say it's a very weird situation, but I, I, I need to be aware still that that is something that, that I have a responsibility to use in order to get good ideas across or to maybe bring people's thinking into different spaces if I can. Neville, we have a, a whole slew of people on the line waiting to talk to you. I've been very territorial about this time with you because mm. I have so many questions that I'd like to ask. Um, but let's take one of the callers, um, okay. Isabel from New York. Isabel, thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Neville. Debbie, congratulations on another season of Design Matters. Thank you. We missed you last week. We oh. were surprised you didn't call. But I was listening. It was a great thank show. You. Great thank you. Neville, you were talking about your career, and mm-hmm. I'm just curious. Um, in your entire career, which projects are you the least proud of and which are you the most absolute proud of? That's a very difficult thing to say. Um, to answer, I'm sorry, Isabel. Um, on a daily basis, I do stuff that I'm so proud of and so unproud of. Um, it's a con- you know, to be honest, to be in, in this industry, as you know, Isabel, it's, it's a continual struggle. Um, there's probably least proud is um, a record cover I did for Gary Newman, um, which no one has seen, and you're not about to, I'm afraid. Um, <laughs> In terms of the work I'm, I'm most proud of, it's probably the Fuse, the Fuse work, um, because I think that's taken the idea of possibility and experimentation in design in, into a new space and taken typography and language into into areas of new 
understanding and possibility. So um, it's, it's a very difficult thing to, uh, to, to answer. It's, you know, I think it's a weekly struggle, this business. Do you feel like you have to compromise your personal aesthetic to please the client? The reality of being a graphic designer is that there's a constant conflict between what you want to do and the fact that you're a commercial service. Um, and the client at the end of the day is, is commissioning and paying for the work that you do. Um, if it's not, then you're not in graphic design or you're an artist just doing design. So at the end of the day, there's a partnership there. But it's, it's a partnership that's not only with the client, but with the audience that's going to be living with the work you do. So part of what we do, um, I think, as, as designers is, is to try and educate the client as well to face that direction and, and help the client to maybe understand a different way of presenting ideas. Thank you. Thank you, and good luck, Debbie, in another great season. I know it's going to be. Thank you, Isabel. Take care. Um, Neville, we have another caller. We have Gregory from New Jersey. Gregory, thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Neville. Hi, Gregory. Uh, the first question I have for you is, can you repair a camera? Can I repair a camera? No, I can break them, though. <laughs> <laughs> wow, did you, just, did you just not want anything to do with that? Or did your father say, why don't you come and learn how to do this? And you say, no. no, my father was... was um, my father was of a generation that had to leave school at the age of 13. He was a, he was a genius in what he was doing, but because of the level of poverty at the time when he was a child, he um, was forced to, to go into work at a very early age. Um, I mean, it's very hard for us to imagine these days in the West um, the idea that you'd have to leave school at the age of 13 to start working. Did he just? Um, did he apprentice to do that? No, 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 no. He was just taken out of school by his mother um, and and forced to start work. I think in a factory at the time. Wow. And um, how do you feel about um, digital photography versus you know film photography? I mean, do you think that eventually there just will be no film photography? I think that you've probably answered that that question. And I think Gregory. Um, I think that digital photography is getting so good now. Mm -hmm. um, the problem is that we end up having too much choice. I think that the danger is that we were a little more precious about film photography. I think, um, I mean, I think that that's a, just such a remarkable point. You just, now, that's just such a great point because I think that carries over into, you know, into graphic art mm -hmm. work where changes can be made so easily mm -hmm. that it, it, your clients don't focus. You know, people just well, don't focus today be... because they don't have to, really. And, and too much choice, is it's impossible for anybody to make the choice. Yeah, I mean, I th you know, I'd like a computer that's invented with a no button. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, you've, done, you've done so much. And, and, I mean, like in Little Britain, like they say, computer says no. Um, you should just reach a point where... The computer judges you to have done enough, and that's it. And I think that's the greatest point. I mean, that wasn't a point that I was going to make, but you've made it, and I'm so glad you did. Wow. All right. Well, personally, I hope film doesn't just disappear for good, but um, I'm, I'm in hopes of the no button at least replacing <laughs> it all. <laughs> well, good luck Thanks. with that one, Gregory. Thanks, Neville. Thanks, Debbie. Thanks, Gregory. Well, we're going to take a quick break. I'd like to let everyone know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is the designer, Neville Brody. We will be back with our broadcast after these messages, so please don't go away. Internet's only all-business and financial radio network, Voice America Business. And now, Voices of Design, a documentary series brought to you by Adobe Systems. The Voices of Design series brings together different voices from the design community to share and exchange ideas on various topics. Today's show features a three-part discussion focused on the topic of sustainability. This is part one. Enjoy. What is sustainability? And what does it mean to the design community? Let's listen to what the designers at the Compost Modern 2006 conference have to say on this topic in Adobe's Voices of Design series. Here is Phil Hamlet, chairman, 
AIGA Environmental Committee. The definition of sustainability that I like to use is quite simple. It's basically leave the place in better shape than you found it. Scott Summit. Summit ID. Sustainability is particularly elusive, especially in industrial design, and that's one of the main reasons I'm here is to try to get a handle on what it means and just how it applies to what I do every day and what I can impart to my clients. Mark Willard, IDO. The pressure is on, and whoever solves it in a more sustainable and desirable way is ahead of the game and, and is what whether people sort of consciously or subconsciously know it, it's, it's definitely what we need. You have been listening to the Voices of Design series brought to you by Adobe Systems. Are you ready to go green? You've asked and we've heard you. Voice America presents the Green Talk Network. Environmental topics are at the forefront of our society, and the Green Talk Network is here to keep you up to date on the latest trends and new innovations for the eco-conscious lifestyle. We'll help promote a variety of ideas on the environment, from global warming issues to how you can become more eco-friendly in your daily activities. Be a part of the solution, not the problem. Visit the Green Talk Network page on voiceamerica.com and tune in to help spread the green. Do you need directions to solve financial future? If so, the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern, for the Money Answers Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is 3.34 Eastern Time in New York City. It is 8.34 in London, England, where we are talking with the wonderful Neville Brody. Hi. I'm your host, Debbie Millman, and if you'd like to join our conversation, if you have a question for Neville, our phone lines are open. You can call 1-866-472-5790. And Neville, I, I want to talk a little bit about um, what you think of the visual culture that we are living in now. I think this is, this is a really quite amazing period in time. Um, and you're talking about the a great leap forward at the beginning of your show. Yes. Um, I think we're on the the edge of one right now. Tell me how. Well, I think the last 25 years has been what I, I call the 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 great freeze. Um, it's we've been in hibernation culturally, I think, for 25 years. Um, ever since um, Reagan and Thatcher declared that culture was in the service of selling, that it was a commercial service, that culture wasn't there to make you think anymore. It was there to make you buy. And you think that Reagan and Thatcher ushered that era in? Absolutely, and was continued by the various governments that followed um, on both sides of the Atlantic, um, and then through into Europe and then through the rest of the world. And... Culture became completely commoditized. Um, it was no longer a random, individual, street, urban place of possibility. It became something that was a commercial imperative that was only valid if it had commercial validation. Um, and I think that for 25 years, I don't recall really seeing any dangerous culture. I've seen a lot of um, maybe contrived danger, but no kind of real, real risk. Um, I mean, I think it's possible to say, Debbie, that I, I went to college and studied a, in a period where I thought revolution was possible, and I didn't mean that the society would become um, anarch anarchistic or whatever, but that 
the work we were doing as visual visual engineers, like like architects, could help society improve, could help society for the better. And that what we were doing wasn't about you know developing careers or or, or finding ways better ways to make money. Um, and for 25 years, graphic design has been purely commercial. And finally, I think we've reached a place um, of amazing possibility again. The belief systems that Reagan and Thatcher put in place, which were the, the banking systems and the, 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 the major success of Wall Street and the city in London, um, you know, those belief systems have collapsed in many ways. Politics is different. The world is different now. And I think suddenly we're on the edge of, of amazing possibilities for the first time in so long. Um, I, I, don't know, I don't know if you feel that in New York. In London, I'm starting to, to meet people that also air this kind of optimism. Um, well, there is an enormous amount of optimism now. We're just four days away from the inauguration. Mm. President Barack Obama, and I do think that people are extraordinarily excited. Um, my biggest fear is that he's not going to be able to live up to all of this optimism, but well, he won't. by being pessimistic. No, but it, I mean, he won't. I mean, he's been, he's been imbued with, with godlike characteristics and hopes, um, and inevitably he will not be able to fulfill everyone's full expectations, but the fact of his appointment and election itself is such an icon for change and for hope. Oh, it's miraculous. It's miraculous. I was talking to somebody in my office today about the crash that occurred yesterday in the Hudson River mm. and the plane that went down. Mm. And the the young woman that I was speaking to felt that the, the optimism in the air and the hope that we all have for this new era is what kept that plane from collapsing <laughs> entirely. And I thought that was such a remarkable way of seeing the world, that the, the, the will of the people are going to keep people going on. Well, let's, let's, let's hope. I mean, I do speak to people everywhere. A, a good friend of mine in New York was very surprised at my optimism. Um, this is just last week, and said that most people in New York, in the design industry, are, are relatively pessimistic. I mean, well, I think that's probably because of the impact of the economy. I mean, yeah. I think that one of the first things to disappear in economies that we're going through now are uh, graphic design projects. People pull them away and you know stop doing things that they don't consider to be necessary. When in fact, strong messaging is what gets you through these types of situations. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I, but I do think that it is pretty remarkable. Last night, there's a show here, I'm not sure if you see it in the UK, um, called The Colbert Report, and um, the host of the show had Shepard Farry on. And Shepard Farry is the, the man that uh, designed the Obama Hope poster mm -hmm. that has become so iconic mm -hmm. in, in the last year. And I thought, my God, we're living in an interesting time when a graphic designer gets to go on a major show on a comedy, on a comedy uh, station. And I think that certainly is representative about what is, what is indeed possible. But I see Shepard's poster in the same way that I see um, Indiana's love uh, sculpture in the same iconic mm. way that it really represents a particular moment in time when you are feeling like hope or change or love are possible. And I, and I certainly do feel optimistic in that regard. I do hope that the economy follows mm -hmm. in that optimistic uh, manner. Well, for, for some years I've been lecturing um, about the state of, of society and uh, most society at the moment is run by fear. Um, you know, we're all afraid that someone out there wants to kill us or that we're going to lose our jobs or that we're going to fail or that a client won't like what we've done. Um, and we have this kind of place of fear, and it's, it's a stumbling block, so we don't take chances at the end of the day. Um, well, I think that that's the way most people operate their lives. I mean, one of the things that I am constantly asking my students is to think about whether or not they're living out of power or out of mm -hmm. fear, out of courage, mm -hmm. or out of, um, out of uh, fear, because I think that we're, we're so afraid as a species mm -hmm. to fail, and part of that is in our DNA, the, the need to... Um, 
to overcome all odds and obstacles just in our uh, ability I, I think to survive. I think that's, you know, again, coming back to your great leap forward and embracing the random accidents and events as a way of evolving as a, as a species or a society. Um, people kind of, I think, in recent years, people have lost the skill of doing that, of recognizing something, a risk, as being something positive. Mm -hmm. What would you say was the biggest risk that you took in your life? Or any risk? risks that you've taken? Gosh. Um, no, the big questions. <laughs> that's a big question. I, I don't think I've taken those risks yet. I think it's a continual thing. The risk is just to, to stay, um, I suppose, dedicated to to this form for my whole life. I mean, it's quite easy to kind of hang up your boots and, at some point and um, go down the basking in success routes. But I'd rather take the risk that um, I keep producing stuff and, and maybe some of it's just going to be um, not good in, in the hope that I'm going to be producing some interesting stuff again. Well, I find it really interesting that, that you look back in, in what I've read in the research that, that um, Jen and I have uncovered in, in preparing for the interview today and in, in our mm -hmm. own interviews in the past, that you've, you've been very vocal about your feelings that the work that you did for The Face, a lot of your early work, mm -hmm. you see those as failures. And, yes, absolutely. And, and I, still, I, still, I still feel that we haven't gotten to the bottom of that in our discussions about why exactly you feel that that work was... Because, was because it was, it was a, a miscalculation. In what way? I mean, I know that you feel that it was highly copied and it was seen as stylistic as opposed to uh, something mm -hmm. that was imbuing a big message, but, but in what way? Johnny Rotten, John Lydon, famously said um, after Punk, he was asked the question, do you think things are better or worse because of Punk? And he said, worse. Um, in a way there was a need for that kind of expression and challenge and change and um, individualism. But the reality is that society copied all of those changes to such a degree that, in fact, it became better skilled at cancelling out any, any opposition to itself. And the face was still part of that same line. Um, the face and that early work was challenging. It was ripping things up and trying new ideas. And there's a constant laboratory, a constant process of reinvention, rediscovery, and looking at chance and possibility. But people didn't see that. What they saw, as you just pointed out, was it was a stylistic adventure. Mm -hmm. And people just adopted the style and the decoration and the surface and rendered what was going on underneath it um, as uh, ineffectual. Well, it's really interesting. You know, as I was thinking about it, I've been really obsessed lately with the whole idea of this great leap forward and with mm. evolution and, and random mutation. And one mm. of the things that um, science shows is that when there is a random mutation that is beneficial to a species, that it, it replicates very quickly. So that's why um, you'll see if, if a species has a random mutation that allows it to run faster or fly faster, then, then you'll see that erupt within that species. And I think that that, that random um, mistake essentially becomes copied. And, and I think that in looking at art and design, that whenever there's been a great innovation, it has been copied. And I find that fascinating mm. um, in that because you were able to create this this different way of looking at language with a visual tool mm -hmm. that that then became something that people wanted to be part of and then they were copying that. What, what I don't was, know that that's what, necessarily a failure. No, but what was driving me was the idea that all rules and regulations could be challenged. That was what it was at the basis. I was influenced largely by Dadaism mm -hmm. um, and then by punk um, and a lot of things in between, people like Richard Hamilton, um, the painter, pop artists, certain abstract expressionists. And their statement was anything is possible. Um, 
And that was what I was trying to imbue my work with. Um, and obviously there was the great uh, American writer and, and uh, experimenter, um, uh, William Burroughs, who was a, a massive influence on my work. Um, particularly something that he developed with the um, English artist Brian Gerson. They developed the, the cut-up technique. Mm -hmm. where they well, would take, yeah, mutations. <laughs> yeah, mutations. They would take two pages of a book, slice them in the middle, join the disparate halves, mend the seams, and discover new possibilities that they could not have sat down and imagined by themselves. And they called this space the third mind. And this process was hugely informative on, on the way that I worked after that point. So what I was trying to say to people was there are rules out there that lead us into a kind of sleepwalking state as a society. Um, these rules need constant questioning and challenging. But what happened was that the work I was doing for the face ultimately became the new rules. Mm -hmm. So I'd hoped that people would maybe look at my work at that time and say, okay, well, this guy's doing this stuff, but... Um, that doesn't mean to say that stuff has to look like that. I'm going to go out and do my own stuff. Do you, did you ever copy anybody along the way? How did, how did your style develop? Because it's certainly something, if you look back over the body of your work, you see it emerging through the work that you did in record covers and the work that in fetish records and then into the face. And well, I very much believe in, a, in kind of fluid kind of evolution that you would move on necessarily from your previous piece of work. Um, and I was strongly influenced by, by as I said, Dadaists, in particular people like Alexander Rodchenko, um, great Russian constructivist, mm -hmm. designer, artist, architect, photographer. I mean, he was, he was so multidisciplined and multi-capable. Um, it still puts a lot of us to shame, I think. Um, and I took the, the approach when I was at college, certainly, that if he was alive today with today's possibilities, what would he be doing? Um, so I'd, rather than copy people, uh, I, would, I was trying to understand their approach and incorporate that into looking at today's society. Um, so there wasn't any kind of notion of copying but certainly Rodchenko's attitude towards typography was very, very influential, as was um, Alex, Alexander McDowell, who was my first boss when I left college. I read, actually, when you left college that you said that you hated type. Yes, I did. I still hate type. Why do you hate type? How do, how do you hate type? You're, you're, part of your, your extraordinary output of work includes so many incredible typefaces. Yeah, but that's because I don't know what type is. Um, I'm, I'm not a typographer, really. I, I was, you know, I'm an image maker, and at college all my work was image making, and all my record covers were image making. But what happened was that record covers shifted, as I said, with this kind of Thatcher-Reagan thing into, instead of depicting ideas and inspirations, they started to depict haircuts. Yes. Um, and there was, in fact, I, there was an English band called Haircut 100, and I think the big freeze started with them, you see. Really? Um, what what uh, about that particular I mean, piece of work, do you think, ushered I, in that, that Well, I mean, Haircut 100, it was, it was, the name of them completely, perfectly summed up what music culture and fashion culture had become at that point. And it wasn't about promoting thought, it was about promoting style and look. Do you think there's anything in the last 25 years you could point to as being something that defied this particular well, there's, a lot, there's a lot of things. There's a lot of small, small explosions and small tendencies and cultures. There's been, there's been a lot more interesting stuff, I think, happening in film than there has been in, in, in graphic design. And now that we, we, I think we both agree that there is this wonderful new era that we're hoping will occur, mm. what do you think is going to happen? Any, any, I mean, I know it's an impossible kind of a question to predict mm -hmm. something like that, but I'd just be curious as to what you would expect to happen next. Well, I expect that a lot of designers are going to end up out of work, which is what was the situation in the 70s. Because um, in the 70s, don't forget, there was, there was certainly on, on the the UK side of the Atlantic, 
And the economy was in a really bad shape. And most designers, a lot of designers would be leaving college um, not able to get work. So, um, and they were forced into a position where, where they would experiment and develop their own ideas. And I think that the negative economy that's hitting the graphic design industry right now actually is potentially a, a very positive thing. Um, In what way? I think we're going to see students leaving college without the idea necessarily that they're just going to walk into a job and become successful and celebrities. Yeah, I do think that um, what I've witnessed over the last 10 years is what I would call a certain entitlement to the mm -hmm. young generation. Mm -hmm. no, absolutely. I call it the, the comfort and prestige generation. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> Nothing against that generation, but I, it's such a massive, massive difference to um, the sentiment and the attitude of um, the people that were around me when I was first getting work, which was about working around the clock and yes. never, never feeling like it was enough. And yes, much of the so designers things. that work here with me in London, when six o'clock comes, they're thinking about leaving. I know, um, I know. Was but, when, I was at, when I was working when six o'clock came, I used to be thinking, right, oh my God, I've only got a few hours left to, to explore all these ideas. Yeah, I used to actually, I was happy because then I'd be alone and could do whatever. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And then suddenly it would be three in the morning um, and you'd only stop working because you'd, you, you were going to collapse, you know. Um, there's a very different thing. I think, we, we, you know, it'll return to that kind of idea that people go into graphic design because they want to explore visual language. Um, we only have another minute or two, Neville, so I want to ask you what you, are your hopes for your next phase, for your next part? Well, I'm already deeply into it. I'm producing a lot of work again. Um, the work that you did for the D&AD was phenomenal. The work that you've done for Daft Punk was gorgeous. I'm sorry that we didn't get more of a chance to talk about some of the work that you've been doing because I think that it is stunning. Thank you. Um, I'm actually, since then, I've been pushing... And I'm getting, I'm engaging much more again with kind of a, a energetic experimental approach, and I'm loving it. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's potentially a fantastic era in graphic design we're just about to step into. Well, I think that um, on that very optimistic moment, uh, that optimistic statement, yeah. I will thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank it you. is such an honor to have you on the show. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me and talk to the listeners of Design Matters. Um, I'd like to thank also my staff and my partners at Sterling Brands, especially Lisa Grant and Jen Simon. And I'd like to thank my listeners. Thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we could make a difference, or we can do both. I am Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you next week. Voice America Business would like to thank you for tuning in for Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Be sure to listen every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for another exciting hour of Design Matters. Right here on the bottom line in business talk. Voice America Business.